CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, and welcome to the show. This is episode 433 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. In today's discussion, we'll briefly talk about some of the knock-on or second-order effects which the coronavirus disruption is having on our world today and which may continue into the future. Then, for the meat of the show, we'll dig into the specific areas where Bitcoin could or perhaps is being improved by the creators of one of the most impactful peer-to-peer technologies live in the world today. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by eToro.com and Purse.io. Let's Talk Bitcoin is owned by the hosts and is editorially independent, but you can find new episodes every Sunday on the Coindesk Podcast Network at Coindesk.com, the LTB Network at Let'sTalkBitcoin.com, and on our privately managed show-only subscriber feed at LTBShow.com. With all of that said, I'd like to welcome you to this episode 433 of the show. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, and an editor at Coindesk. Joining our discussion today, Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Hi there. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. And Bram Cohen, creator of the BitTorrent Protocol and CEO of Chia. Hey, everybody. On behalf of the hosts, we'd like to thank Bram and you, the listener, for sitting in on today's session. So to jump right into this, our world is changing. That's probably always true, but with the coronavirus-inspired lockdowns, shelter-in-place or stay-at-home orders, whatever you want to call it, I think we're in a period of acute change right now. New habits are being formed, and concepts that used to seem far-fetched are becoming commonplace or just sort of assumed. In this first segment, we're going to briefly discuss a couple of the potential effects that we're noticing in the world today. And a lot of this topic is built on a document called Second Order Coronavirus Effects, which we'll link in the show notes and which, frankly, is a fabulous document if you're interested in kind of thinking this out. So Second Order Effects. There's the obvious stuff that's going on in the world and the obvious changes that are happening. And then there's sort of the stuff that is going to happen because of the stuff that's happening now and the potential impacts that it could have. But just to kick it off, when we were looking at these lockdowns, we were saying, all right, well, this might be 14 days was kind of what the initial impression was. But now it's all of this month. We're recording this on April 2nd. And all of this month is going to have, it seems like, those social distancing measures in effect. Oh, yeah. The previous month had it, too. (laughs) We just came off of a month of isolation, and now we're staring down the barrel of another month, and could be even longer. Only idiots thought it was two weeks. Well, I mean, do most people think more than two weeks ahead anyway? I think a lot of people are just kind of like, you know, taking it day by day, which is fine. But we're in this situation where if we want to do the goal, which is flattening the curve and making it so that the healthcare system doesn't get too overwhelmed, we really need to isolate, and we might just need to, like, sit with that and not know how long we're going to have to isolate for. Just do it until things get better. And that's really difficult for some people to grapple with. And of course, it has a lot of effects that we're going to be talking about today. Revenge of the hikikomori. 
What's that? Hikikomori is the Japanese term for shut-ins. It's people who never leave their house. Oh, so me. <laughs> <laughs> like Adam and me. <laughs> Voluntary hermitude. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting because, you know, one category is the people who do work from home. And I think all of us have for a big chunk of our lives done that. I've been doing it since 1995. I've worked from home entirely. And then there's people who not only work from home, but also don't do a lot of the socializing. Or they do, but they do it at home. So I think that that's the second category, which is hikikomori. I've been thinking about this because I've been also work from home since 2013. So having a lot of time to get accustomed to it. But a few years ago, I got really interested in personality types. And I started reading a lot, especially about introversion and extroversion. And now, like people who hear me on the show may not believe this, but I am very introverted. I play an extrovert on the radio, but <laughs> I'm very introverted and I'm one of those voluntary hermits. And since I started becoming aware of that about myself, I've given myself permission to, you know, go out less, to not always text back right away, to <laughs> just hide from my phone or from whatever my email if I need to for a few hours or a few days or a weekend or a week. And that's been great for my mental health. But I've noticed that it's kind of an extrovert's world. It's kind of like, especially in American culture, we prioritize or we value people who are willing to go out there and seize the day and like do stuff out, you know, and staying at home is seen as a sign of weakness, maybe as a sign of femininity, right? Because it's like, you know, you associate with a stay-at-home mom, right? And our culture doesn't value stay-at-home moms as they do dads who go out and work and make the money. And I'm not saying I agree with that. I don't agree with it. But that is sort of like the way our culture falls. And is this dynamic going to flip now? Like the introverts are finally having their day, like Andreas was just saying. Yep. Oh, the social anxiety people have is really hilarious. It's like people are not used to video chats. It's like they need to plan a video chat like days in advance. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then mess it up completely. At least I know to hide all of the things in the background of my shots that are going to reveal everything about my location, my habits, and everything else I've been doing the day. There's, there's so many hilarious stories are coming out of you know, teachers who have been thrust into online learning without any preparation, et cetera, and don't know how to set up their workspace. They put a filter on their video that makes them into a potato and they don't realize it and they get stuck that way for the entire class. <laughs> 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 Although, I mean, honestly, that would be a much better school experience than the one that I had. So, I mean, like, I can't argue with the potato too much. <laughs> well, if you think about it, it's like, do you remember when AOL was dumped onto the internet? Right. This is like that, but for working from home with Zoom meetings. <laughs> yeah, it's like that, but with boomers getting dumped onto the internet <laughs> and to working from home situations. Yeah, I mean, and there's also a dark side to this too. Like I've heard about Zoom bombing. Have you guys heard about this? Yeah. Oh yeah, Zoom urals are 10 digits long and you can just war dial them. You can manually war dial them. It's ridiculous. Like, wow, what year is this? <laughs> Could you add a few more digits to the end of that, please? Yeah. And I think people spending more time with their nesting partners, their spouses, their kids, people that they live with, when normally they get a break from them for at least five to eight hours a day. And what does that do to relationships? 
Well, there's a dark side to that too. I mean, there's going to be an increase in domestic violence and child abuse and elder abuse and stuff like that too. I mean, with respect to my life, I would say that a lack of public school will probably reduce massively the amount of child abuse that's occurring in America. (laughs) (laughs) It's been really interesting kind of watching that and talking to people because Stephanie, as you said, like I've basically built my life for a whole variety of reasons around this sort of fully remote approach. But, you know, like I'm married. Right. And what happens is that when you live in very close proximity with somebody, all of the potential problems that can be problems, they get a lot louder. Right. And so if you build your life around that, then a lot of the process of really getting to know a person is figuring out where those rough spots are. And then trying to figure out how you deal with that. And most often what me and my wife do is you turn it into something that's kind of funny about the other person or something that makes you laugh, as opposed to being something that's annoying, right? Do the problems get louder, though, or do they just get like harder to sweep under the rug and ignore? Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? I mean, it's the difference between, you know, having 24-hour exposure to it versus having, you know, like 12-hour exposure to it, right? I think it can be an opportunity for greater intimacy, because if you can actually talk about the issues that you have that are brought to light by being together all the time, if that wasn't something you were doing before, you can turn it into an opportunity for growth as a couple or as a family or whatever. Absolutely. But that doesn't always work. I guess that's my point is that like, A, that's a mode that you have to kind of get into. I would argue it's a learned skill, right? Because you have to kind of be willing to embrace the conflict in order to resolve it and come out the other side with a kind of better or more nuanced understanding. And I think that for a lot of people, that's not a normal mode because they have never been forced to kind of do that in the same way that's happening now. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But just like boomers are being forced to learn how to use Zoom, we can maybe call them Zoomers now. (laughs) (laughs) People in general are being forced to develop better skills at relating to their family members and people they live with. I agree. Absolutely. And I think it is a huge opportunity for that. But it's also at a weird time. Thinking back to when I was in, you know, like high school in like the teens to, you know, early 20s, that would have been a rough time for me to have been kind of stuck in my situation, not because I had any sort of bad situation, but just because I was unhappy with it. Right. And so that compression in that circumstance just would have made me super angry. So, I mean, like, I'm so happy to be at the point in my life that I am now and have done the things that I did because this hasn't really been that disruptive to me. It's been interesting watching other people adjust when this is the life that I've been choosing to live for a long time. But I just wanted to recognize that this is a really, really stressful situation for a lot of people. And again, the longer this thing extends, kind of the more stressful it's going to get. Yeah, there's like categories of social distancing and isolation and quarantine that people are experiencing, which are very, very different. I've been talking to a friend who's actually delighted by quarantine. She gets to spend time with her kids. All of the crafts projects that were never getting done are getting done. There's lots of projects happening around the house. She's got quality time. She doesn't need excuses to not socialize, to not follow up, to not meet appointments, to not deal with deadlines, to not even have expectations. And all of that has given her a tremendous amount of freedom. And of course, you know, that's in a place where social isolation and distancing is possible. And many places around the world, it's not even possible. Like you live in Mumbai right now, you can't isolate. There's no such thing. It's possible. It's affordable. This person isn't losing their job or worried about whether they'll be able to pay rent. So there is a varying degree of this experience. Some people are experiencing this very differently than others. The most extreme example was this billionaire 
I can't remember who it was, who was sending photos of their super yacht <laughs> somewhere in the Canary Islands and lamenting quarantine in a sarcastic way. So if this turns into guillotines, they're the first to go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, how out of touch do you have to be? And then there's other people who are experiencing this in a much more catastrophic way. So I think that's one of the other second order effects is that while we're all getting a glimpse into the things that unite us as humanity, you know, that everyone's susceptible to this, we're also experiencing this very differently. And there will be a divergence in people's experiences and how people remember this time. Right now, we just have quarantine. We don't have the peak of the pandemic. And the number of people who die is going to vary a lot between different locations. There are going to be some countries where it just stays totally under control. And there are going to be some countries and maybe even some states in the United States where the hospitals just get overwhelmed and people just die for lack of ventilators and lack of medical staff who can help them. And so this story is just beginning right now. Or die because they had a tooth infection and decided not to go to the dentist for four months. Like the second order effects of everything else that happens in life that is put on hold is going to be even more pronounced and not counted in the official tally. Although there was at least one report of overall mortality in the United States that appears to be much lower than normal right now. Yes, because of car accidents and other things that are not happening. Well, it was also pretty crazy because when China shut down and then Shenzhen went under quarantine, I said the crazy thing about this virus is if you net out the number of fentanyl ODs, that won't be happening because 95% of the black market's fentanyl isn't being produced right now. We may actually be net positive coronavirus deaths in America. Yeah, well, also there are people who are getting more sleep, so they might be getting fewer heart attacks. It could be that flu actually kills a lot more people than we realize because there's an old person who has an underlying issue, but what actually kills them is the flu. But when you do the autopsy, it looks like whatever it was attributed to. Right. Yeah. And don't forget, falls are a big cause of deaths among the elderly, too. And I don't know if this is going to change the rate of falling at home, but it might change the rate of home health care workers who do help elderly people out at home being able to reach them and access them. One of the second order effects is that we are seeing worse outcomes for pandemics in cities that have dense public transportation systems like subway systems, trains and buses. And so that's going to change people's behavior around those transportation systems, as it already has in most of Asia since SARS. So we're going to see a lot more people obviously wearing masks in public transport. But one of the effects that we saw almost immediately was that Lyft, Uber, and other ride-sharing companies canceled their bus mode, the pool services, where you take a car and you don't just share it with a driver who's a stranger, but three other strangers who hop on at different points. So that's gone. And I don't think that's coming back, honestly. But more broadly, though, the other interesting effect is the degree to which people want to isolate while doing transportation, which they'll probably do less often if they're working from home. And how that ties into autonomous vehicles of various types. So the idea of accelerating the adoption of self-driving cars because of necessity, accelerating the adoption of self-driving delivery vehicles, again, because of necessity, and changing kind of the landscape of cities to accommodate those things. 
already, for example, in suburban America, it's quite possible to not go to the supermarket and just have everything delivered or to arrange a pickup and go pick it up. Yeah, actually, I've had experience with that recently, my first time trying these kinds of services. But one thing I've noticed is that the delivery people are really stressed out and they are like, for example, Instacart, which is like this grocery shopping Uber kind of situation. Their employees went on strike because they were not being given personal protective equipment by the company or training. You know, I've had a couple of deliveries in the past week where the delivery person got the order wrong because probably I would guess they are very stressed out, overworked, not enough staff, not enough training, and they're scrambling. And so, you know, automating that would be probably better for everybody. You know, there is the issue of maybe lost jobs or lost revenue, but maybe that frees humans up to do safer things, other things. Automating is real hard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think you'll have more people picking groceries. And, you know, there's now a pool of 10 million unemployed people in the U.S. who are looking for jobs in grocery chains and food delivery and distribution chains that have a desperate need for more employees so that you may see a massive change in employment. But the last mile problem, which is the actual delivery to the home, is something that's getting a lot of stress. I've heard from reading news about how this is almost Christmas level of traffic for UPS, FedEx, USPS, and all of the other various delivery services. Funniest story and tweets I've read regarding that is where, you know, when you place an order with these picking services at supermarkets, you can tell them if you want them to cancel something if it's not in stock or choose a close substitution if there is such a substitution available or just choose a different brand, but same product or whatever. So you can have some options there. One of the funniest tweets I read was this woman who ordered tampons and put closest substitute if not possible and got cocktail sausages (laughs) as the replacement. (laughs) The tweet comment was, this is going to be a very weird month. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by eToro. Did you know that eToro has been providing powerful tools made easy to traders since 2007 and offering cryptocurrency trading since 2013? At eToro, there are no hidden fees and no commissions. Traders love the intelligence they offer, like smart charts on every asset with customizable chart features and the ability to experiment with a virtual portfolio that's stocked with $100,000 of test funds as soon as you create your account. Get started in minutes by going to etoro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Please remember that cryptocurrency is volatile and trading it carries risks of financial loss. Please trade responsibly. I'm not in favor of government doing stuff most of the time. But one thing I've been thinking about a lot is how if the government was going to do a work program for this really weird period where people are kind of stuck at home and many people would rather not be stuck at home. It feels like a general delivery service, right, at the national level where people who want to participate and want to get out of the house can like get the appropriate protective equipment. And you can do kind of like shopping trips that go to potentially more than one store on a per person basis. And the government would help subsidize it and it would pay people money and they'd have something to do. And it would solve this problem in areas where the services haven't rolled out. Like I'm not advocating that they do this, but I think actually it's a pretty interesting idea and a place where I think that government and subsidies could actually potentially help with things. 
I don't think you really need government and subsidies, though. I mean, it's already happening. The demand is enormous. There's plenty of companies to do it, and there's plenty of people willing to do it. So, I mean, I don't know exactly what the role of government would be there other than to overpromise and underdeliver. Well, there's a density issue when it comes to rolling out these as commercial services, right? And maybe that density issue is now solved. So perhaps you're right. Perhaps it is completely unnecessary at this point. But the opportunity for a daily press conference is still there. So maybe. (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole set of new opportunities in sterilization. People have never taken this like getting sick thing seriously. I think we're going to start seeing homes getting renovated. So there's no touch automated hand washing right when you walk in in the foyer. Uh, I think shaking hands is never going to come back. (laughs) This is going to be a thing now. I actually hope that this maybe a silver lining improves like the level of sexual harassment. You know, like I would be glad if some people were not greeting me by like kissing me on the face or touching me. In New York City, when the swine flu outbreak happened, the response to that was every building and every major sort of conjunction point in a private space put a Purell auto dispenser. And I thought it was fantastic because every time every person went past an escalator, they just put their hand under the machine because you were there anyway. And so hand washing went up to like 95%. I'm like, this is amazing. They removed them afterwards? So I would say about 80% of them went away. But a decade later, I would say one in five of the ones that got set up all across the city are still there. It's now very common to walk into the lobby of a building and see a Purell dispenser. And it seems like a trend that's likely to continue given everything that's happening now. Yeah, so there was some sort of like cultural consciousness that it diminished, but it's still there. There's an interesting kind of development in new technologies there. For example, far UV, which doesn't degrade plastics and is not cancer causing because it doesn't penetrate deep enough in the skin, is a new option. So the idea of having automated cleansing cycles of things like self-driving cars or building lobbies or patient rooms so that every time the door closes and there's no one in the room, the room bathes itself in far UV light. You could even do that in things like the lobbies of homes, you know, the foyer. Oh no, far UV you can do when there are people in the room too. I believe the wavelengths they're talking about are the ones just barely outside of x-rays. So it's like the most extreme wavelengths that actually get through ordinary air. Normally, the effect of that is they're just blocked by human skin pretty easily. And then when it comes to touching surfaces, the best pro tip I can provide to people is buy a Bic lighter and a paperclip. Break the paperclip in half, put it around the opening of the Bic lighter so that it's sort of like a U semicircle. Touch the button you need to touch and then light the Bic lighter to set the paperclip on fire to sanitize it and then put it in your pocket. And that could be your pokey stick. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You know, I've seen devices like this for phones with the far UV. Yes. Oh, there should be things that you just put your phone in that sanitize it. Those should be everywhere. Right. Yeah. Especially in bathrooms. So while you're washing your hands, it sanitizes your phone. Ooh, that's a good idea. The thing that I would say I thought would be a second order effect that hasn't happened was I thought the internet was going to go back like 10, 15 years in terms of available bandwidth. I'm actually very surprised that at least in America, the infrastructure has been able to keep up with everyone switching to remote working and streaming. Everyone's bottleneck to the internet is their home connection. The backbone is easy to upgrade to have way more capacity than we're using right now. 
So in Europe, is it mostly politicians thinking it's a series of tubes? Why would they throttle YouTube and Netflix? Is it reactionary or is it based in merit in terms of throughput in the network? It's social signaling. Got it. Downgrading your Netflix video quality is kind of like, it's controversial for me to say, but it's a lot like recycling. (laughs) (laughs) Recycling, unfortunately, is an example where recycling aluminum cans and corrugated cardboard, if you separate those, is actually a good idea. The problem is people really, really want to recycle. They want to recycle everything. And recycling is garbage and there's only so much utility for it at some points like we're recycling everything we can possibly recycle there's only so much demand for this garbage even properly sorted beforehand and yet people continue to recycle they continue to be aggressive about trying to put as much of their garbage in the recycling as possible because it makes them feel good to do it and reducing the bandwidth on netflix is really just doing that. It's saving Netflix some amount of money, but it's allowing the Netflix viewers to feel virtuous. They should put on a mask instead. (laughs) That's the only important virtue signaling that needs to happen right now. Put on a damn mask. Well, you could also just not go out in public at all. But when you are in public, if you put on a mask, you are, if nothing else, encouraging other people to do the same. Well, I found because I've been carrying a mask with me, for years now, partly because I spent time in Asia and both because of high pollution and the normality of mask wearing there. But I started wearing a mask all the time in public somewhere around the middle of February. And it was great for social isolation because people avoided me as if there was something wrong with me for wearing the mask. And so I would be in the supermarket with my mask on and the aisle I was in would empty immediately. And people would come, they'd turn into the aisle, they'd see me wearing my mask, they'd do a U-turn and take the next aisle. And I was like, no sauces, spices, or pasta for you, sir. <laughs> also, if you put on headphones, people don't try to talk to you. Unless you're a woman. <laughs> <laughs> We're all fans of decentralized and distributed peer-to-peer technologies. They're very important. But historically, there aren't a ton of examples of popular success or things that have penetrated the mainstream in a way that was actually visible. And with BitTorrent and with kind of peer-to-peer file sharing, you know, that is actually one of the systems that really has had a meaningful impact on our world. And in cryptocurrency, many, many people have kind of looked to that as an example of what we could eventually accomplish in terms of penetration, in terms of impact and things like that. So, Bram, you are in the process of creating, I believe you're out in testnet now, a project called Chia. Yeah. And Chia uses a variety of things. It effectively tries to build on top of sort of what Bitcoin has accomplished and then make a bunch of things better about it. And so today in this conversation, what I'd like to talk about is how you are making those things better and why those are things that matter and are important to actually make better. And I think the place to start with this is with the different consensus mechanism, which you've designed, which is called proof of space and time, right? Yes. Forgive my ignorance, please, because I haven't heard of your project yet. But is this Chia as in pet or as in seed or something else? (laughs) Chia pets are called Chia pets because the actual plant that you put on it is Chia. Oh, okay. So it's kind of like full circle. Yeah, no, this was actually done by the Aztecs. This guy from San Francisco, who actually coincidentally used the same trademark lawyer we did, found out about this thing that the Aztecs did and decided to sell them as novelty gifts. And his trademark was only on the term chia pet, not on chia generally, because chia is a grain. 
Did you get the trademark on Chia? I'm not sure exactly current status. Wait, wait, tech companies can name themselves after vegetables? Next, you're going to say there's a company called Apple. (laughs) (laughs) Apples are not vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) So the origin of the company name, I guess you're supposed to make up some excessively touchy-feely story about how you love the world on coming up with your name. But the honest story about the name for the company is we have farming instead of mining. So I'd come up with this term and we were talking about names for the product. And I mentioned I'd come up with this farming name and everybody liked it. So I just went and looked up, you know, just on Wikipedia, a list of grains. And I've always told people, give your company a misspelled name. Don't do it. <laughs> and make sure it's gluten-free. <laughs> And also there are these just technical requirements of a company name, which is somebody needs to read it, mention it to somebody else in person. That person needs to remember it and web search for it and find it. And so I applied that criterion to a list of grain names in combination with what was reasonably open from a trademark standpoint and came up with Chia as the obvious winner among that list. I kind of like... Amaranth, but that's very hard to spell. Yeah. (laughs) I want to ask why Bran didn't make the list. (laughs) I was thinking of calling it Bramcoin because everybody told that joke, but people hated it as an actual name. (laughs) (laughs) What was the reason to do a different consensus mechanism and what led you to proof of space and time? I love the name. Reminds me of one of my favorite books. Tell us the story there. The funny thing with the term proof of space and time, at times people have assumed I was just joking that I was making up some science fiction sounding mumbo jumbo. Right. And it's like, no, no, that's actually what's going on here. Bitcoin has a lot of very obvious problems. One of them is that it does this mining. And when mining is happening, you have warehouses full of computers burning electricity, doing literally nothing. <laughs> It's a competitive money-burning process, right? Like, that's the whole point. It's Keynesian stimulus in the most horrible way possible. (laughs) Um, So can you get rid of this? And there's actually another problem with Bitcoin's consensus algorithm, which is it isn't as decentralized as it should be. It's decentralized. It does, honest to God, have this feature that all the miners today could disappear and other people could take over and life goes on. The database continues to move forward and continues to work, which is a great feature. But you have a handful of entities controlling the mining capacity of the network. And that's not good. That's not something you want to have happen. So in this competitive money burning process, as hardware has been getting more and more efficient and as the network has been getting more and more competitive, it's basically become almost an industry unto itself, right? And so that's what you mean by concentration here is that the players who are out there who are making money and who are incentivized to do this, they tend to be increasingly large players just by nature of that hyper competitive factor. Well, there's this very obvious metric, which is how many pools would it take to do a 51% attack on the network? And the answer is three. And the number varies, but it never goes above like five, and sometimes it drops down to two. So in very real terms, a 51% attack would be entirely feasible. It wouldn't even be hard. And that's a very scary thing. Shia is very much a direct descendant of Bitcoin. It's not using any of the same code base because... The idea is to fix everything, which wound up meaning everything had to be rewritten. But spiritually, it's really trying to accomplish all the same things. So it's like, let's use an actual honest-to-God Nakamoto consensus. If I'm going to bash anybody, it's going to be people trying to do proof of stake, because that's unambiguously a step backwards. That is, 
a fundamentally more centralized thing than Nakamoto consensus is. And I'm absolutely doing Nakamoto consensus. So trying to improve on proof of work is something people have done. And generally speaking, they wind up taking steps backwards rather than forwards. People will try and do like ASIC hard proof of work. They'll try and make it so that general purpose CPUs are not as disadvantaged against custom hardware for doing mining. And that, it turns out, is counterproductive because that is a battle you're going to lose. You just will lose no matter what, because even if you lost by a little bit, even if you lost by like a factor of two, you've still completely lost because the costs of power dominate. And there's no way you're going to get the power usage of a general CPU down close to what a custom hardware is doing for a particular mining problem. And by making it more difficult to do that, all you've done is create a greater moat around building a crypto acceleration hardware, which is going to create further centralization and limit the number of vendors of this hardware, which is another problem. And that's not something that you want to have happen. So disappointingly there, it's like, no, you really want to just use the simplest thing possible. Proof of work, the way Bitcoin does mining, is at this plateau of functionality that it's very, very hard to do better. And spiritually, I believe in saying, how can we make this all much more commodity? And that's what I'm doing. But on a just purely technical level, there's a question of what could you possibly use? How can this possibly work? Especially when you want to go, well, we're going to make it not really require any power. Because if you say, well, I'm going to come up with something that doesn't need more power, it's like, well, you not only need it to not need more power, you need to make it so people can't use more power. They can't just do these grinding attacks where they go, oh, well, I'll just try a billion possibilities for what the future history is going to look like and pick out the one that works out best for me. Now, in Bitcoin, this isn't a problem because you just define grinding as just what you do. That's just normal behavior in the system. And that's a way of dealing with it. It clearly works. Bitcoin is an honest-to-God, in-the-wild deployed, it's up-and-running, secure distributed database, which is an amazing thing. But we would like to do better. We would like to make this whole thing less wasteful and more distributed. And particularly when you're talking about making it more distributed, there's this question of how do you prevent this situation where some people get better ROI than others do? on investing in this, and they become just the handful of players in this market who are doing this the best. And likewise, the waste, it's like, well, we can make it so you're not using power right there, but how do we make it so people aren't just spending money building the hardware? And that's where the money is going, and we haven't really changed the fundamental economics of what's going on here. So there's a loophole. (laughs) Very, very subtle, tiny, specific loophole, which is there is this massive resource already extant. There's huge, ludicrous, insane amounts of storage capacity in the world. And the way storage works is people buy more than they need at the moment and then fill it up over some period of time. And so a pretty significant fraction of this ridiculous amount of resources just sitting there underutilized, over-provisioned at any given moment. So if we can just airdrop, (laughs) essentially, the farming rewards onto those, then 
anyone who tries to invest in this, anyone's like, oh, well, I'm going to buy hard drives to farm with. Well, once the market settles out, eventually, be losing money on that because they're competing with over-provisioned stuff. That other people bought this thing because they actually wanted it for storage and paid, you know, real market rate, but they have excess on it. And so the cost to them of farming off of that is nothing. They're just getting gravy money. But if you buy the hard drive just for this, you're pretty rapidly going to be losing money on your investment because you're competing with these purchases that people have already done. Isn't that also true about CPUs? CPUs on computers and stuff like that, the early days of Bitcoin mining, effectively what you had was people not necessarily going out and buying new computers to do mining. They were just using excess capacity on their laptop or something like that. And then as time went on, they kind of hyper-specialized into more and more sophisticated and specialized equipment. Yeah, so this was Satoshi's vision. And the Bitcoin white paper, Satoshi lays out clearly, (laughs) read up on BitTorrent, and it was drawing a parallel here. The idea was that people have already purchased all these CPUs and that the cost of mining is primarily going to be a depreciation on the sunk cost of the CPU. And since there are lots of CPUs in the world, this will continue to be distributed, which held up briefly. <laughs> yeah, a couple of years. <laughs> so there were two things wrong with that. Obviously, I'm trying to make this work still. I empathize with the goal, but this failed for two reasons. Number one, because hardware beats CPU so badly at any normal computation. And number two, because of power. Power completely dominates this entire thing. And there are places that have cheap power and places that have expensive power. So just to clarify here, maybe I'll paraphrase you a bit, Bram. But basically what you're saying is there isn't a three order of magnitude better hard drive that you can buy if you can custom design a hard drive. But there is a three order of magnitude better than CPU. And also the three order of magnitude better hard drive may have more storage, but will not give you a significant advantage if it uses a kilowatt of energy instead of the normal consumption. Well, a three order of magnitude better hard drive, you would call a hard drive. It's not qualitatively different from the one a consumer has. Right, yeah. The proofs of space are this magical thing. Storage is storage. Like a hard disk is a hard disk. When you're doing computations, there are all kinds of different assembly instructions that vary between CPUs, and any specific computation will use a particular one, and there's all this optimization on it and stuff. You notice hard drives all have the same API. You open a file, you write to it. That's it. There's no difference whatsoever in the API of different storage media. I think it's also worth mentioning, because this took me a hot minute to unpack in my head when I was first learning about it, is that unlike other projects that people sort of lump you together with, your system isn't storing people's data, it's storing data. So it's not a storage protocol, it is a proof of data storage protocol. Yeah, it's not doing a useful thing. It's not IPFS. You don't download stuff and prove that you're continuing to back it up. That's not what it's doing at all. Those things I view as fundamentally flawed for a long list of reasons. The two biggest reasons are, number one, that's a huge amount of bandwidth to even get started. And number two, there are all these crazy attacks where someone like fake stores something, especially because all these files are presumably encrypted. Someone can pretend they're storing lots of files And actually, these files are just 
garbage, which they have the seed for, for the stream cipher. So they don't actually have to do the storage themselves to prove that they still have it because they can regenerate it at any time. So that whole approach to doing things I view as very fundamentally flawed. This is something much, much simpler where you go, okay, I want to start farming. I have this hard drive. Let's start farming. And you just do this thing where you make what's called a plot file and it starts farming and that's it. So the process of farming then is you prove that you have this storage space available, but none of it is actually being used in this process. It's just the metric that's being calculated on a distributed, anybody can join and anybody can leave basis in a similar way to how proof of work works, right? Yeah. So you can think of it as when Bitcoin mining is done, it's kind of like everyone's printing these lottery tickets really, really fast. Just everyone's running their lottery ticket printing machine. And once in a while, someone prints a winning lottery ticket and boom, they make the next block and life goes on. And now the databases move forward one block. They just spent, you know, I don't know, $10,000 to generate a megabyte of data. But when you're doing proofs of space, it's more like you have a hard drive full of bingo cards that there's a challenge that comes in and everyone goes and looks up what is the closest bingo card I have to this challenge. And whoever gets the closest one wins and they make the next block and you move on with the next thing. So there's this very important technical subtlety here. This thing by itself without some new cryptography added is deeply and profoundly broken because there are grinding attacks that someone can do these things where it doesn't cost anything to go do these lookups to try and make the next block. It's like, okay, well, I'm just going to try a billion possibilities for the next couple of blocks, find the one that works out best for me. And I'm now getting more utility out of my storage capacity than I'm supposed to. And this is a very insidious and profound type of problem. And it also applies historically that someone can rewrite history because they might have a lot more capacity now than the blockchain had through most of its history. And so they can rewrite the history to be overall weightier than the legitimate one is. And that's another very scary kind of attack. So there's this question of how do you prevent this from happening? So a critical piece of this whole thing is proofs of time, hence this very science fictional sounding proofs of space and time, that you do this thing where you alternate proofs of space and proofs of time and the number of iterations which the proof of time has to run for is inversely proportional to the quality of the proof of space. So better proofs of space make the next block faster and move things forward after that. So people kind of stick with those. And if you combine those together and do a lot of subtleties just right, you can get a working Nakamoto consensus. A Nakamoto consensus, I should explain, there's this fundamental insight in Bitcoin that if you and I get into a discussion of what is the current state of the database, we can't go to anybody else. There's no trusted third party by definition. There's not supposed to be a trusted third party. You and I need to be able to figure out what the current state of the database is. So we have a blockchain. It has a history. It has a weight. And so if we get into an argument, we compare our histories and whichever one of them had the most blood, sweat and tears go into it is the winning one. And you and I just can locally measure what the weight of our blockchains is. And whoever has the weaker one goes, okay, you win. I'm going to accept yours. So you described a system of proof of space and time for securing a blockchain and getting to consensus. But is this for specific types of blockchain applications? Is it for cryptocurrency? What is this useful for, I guess? It's useful for having a secure distributed database. So it's taking proof of work 
and it's making it better. It's making it less wasteful. It's making it more distributed. It's making it more secure. Okay, so let's go through those individually. So it's less wasteful because there's no electricity use being done for the purpose of generating the lottery tickets, right? Yes. There's no electricity being used immediately. And then there's this much more involved explanation of why it is that this hasn't simply moved off waste to manufacturing instead of running things. And the answer there is because it's leveraging this already extant resource that's underutilized. Okay. And from a decentralization standpoint, it's better because as Andreas was talking about earlier with you, there's no comparison to the CPU, GPU, ASIC or FPGA and then ASIC. In hard drives. Yeah, for hard drives. The excess hard drive capacity in the world is already distributed among many people and you can't make better hard drives for this purpose. There's no custom hard drive that's better for it. Okay. And so somebody who would be using this as a mining mechanism their hard drive space isn't being filled up by this process or it's not really being utilized at all. No, 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 no. It is filled up by it. It's just when you want to actually use your hard drive for something useful, you just delete one of your plots so you have free space. Okay, so it is occupying it, but it's not storing anything useful there. It's just doing that instead of the standard, you know, computational-based proof-of-work puzzle solving. That is correct. Okay, gotcha. So you've changed the thing that we're measuring, but not the reason why we measure it And the thing that we're now measuring has kind of a more flat scale as opposed to, you know, the greater differences, right, that exist on the computational side. So what else did I miss about it? What other parts about this are better than what Bitcoin does and why? So that's the general consensus algorithm layer of things. That's been a huge lift for us to do. I came up with this whole plan for proofs of space and time. And all that it needed was like, okay, great, let's invent proofs of space, let's invent proofs of time, and let's figure out how to actually put all this together. So it's the proof of space on one side, and then the proof of space by itself is insufficient, but putting it together with proof of time makes it so that it creates effectively a Nakamoto consensus compatible protocol. It is a Nakamoto consensus protocol. Right, together. But you were saying that proof of space by itself has all sorts of attacks. Yeah. You invented two different things and you put them together in a way that actually accomplishes the same thing that Bitcoin does, but without all the problems we've been discussing. Yeah, there's a lot of subtleties in terms of how you put these together in a way that's actually secure and actually stops grinding attacks, which is what the Chia Green paper is all about. And then the two primitives, when we started work on this, VDFs weren't invented yet. So I kind of whined about how the world needed VDFs until people invented them. And VDF stands for verifiable delay function, he said, looking at the FAQ. (laughs) Yeah, I usually call them proofs of time because it's more descriptive and poetic. Sure. And the proofs of space, that was a long rabbit hole. Proofs of space, there's an obvious approach to doing proofs of space that's beautiful and simple and horribly busted. It's busted by these Hellman time space trade-offs, which in this context we call Hellman attacks. This is the same Hellman of Diffie-Hellman. Figured this out. And it was thought there wasn't anything you could do about this. And I came up with an idea. (laughs) And I explained it to Greg Maxwell. And he broke it. And I tweaked it. And he broke it. And we went back and forth a few times. (laughs) And then he was like, okay, I can't break it anymore. I'm not saying it's secure, but I can't break it anymore. And then I mailed Christoph Piachok about it. And then he broke it. And then I tweaked it. He broke it. And I tweaked it, he broke it, I tweaked it. And he's like, okay, I'm just going to prove that nothing along these lines can possibly work because he couldn't break it anymore. And he worked on it a bunch. And 
Turns out he couldn't break it anymore because it wasn't breakable. <laughs> so there's these like very, very involved technical machinations in order to make proofs of space that actually work properly, which has been a big focus of me personally, like hashing out the details of this. But in the end, it kind of lands you back to where you started. You can intuitively think of it as being a bunch of bingo cards sitting on your disk that are in sorted order. And your intuitions about everything will be correct about its behavior, even though there's a lot of importantly different technical details. As far as I see, Gia, it makes a lot of sense as to how it's a Nakamoto consensus. And the thing that I find fascinating about it is that it's targeting a different supplier. So you're not going after miners because miners don't run large data centers. If they do, then they'd have a data center company. I mean, some of them do, but if you're running an ASIC company, you don't have, you know, exabytes of storage. And so I could get how you're monetizing an entirely different actor class with different physical hardware into becoming a cryptocurrency miner. So from the sort of securing the network standpoint, I totally get how you're a distinct protocol that actually isn't competitive. Where I would like to sort of further unpack is on the demand side, as a consumer, as a normie, what would be the thing that Chia can do that would make me interested in it beyond a Bitcoin or an Ethereum that's sort of distinct or different? Oh, we have all kinds of amazing stuff there. I'm actually very excited to talk about so I can give a high-level overview of what we're doing. So we have an on-chain programming environment that's in the UTXO model. It's very much like how Bitcoin works. So if you look at the different on-chain programming environments available, you have Bitcoins, which is safe and reliable and audible and understandable, but extremely limited in terms of what it can do. And you have Ethereum's and the Solidity model, which is dangerous and nearly impossible to audit and actually quite expensive, but allows you to do basically anything you want. So we figured out how to combine these together. We have this on-chain programming environment called Chialisp, where all the persistent data that's stored in the blockchain is just a set of coins. But if you use some clever programming tricks, it turns out you can do anything. So the resources for running a full node are still low because it's just a set of current extant coins that you're keeping track of. In terms of your programmatic power, you can do basically anything. And it's actually much, much better for this from an auditing standpoint than Solidity or anything vaguely like it is because everything's kind of like message passing. And we actually already have a whole bunch of stuff implemented for this. We've got like rate-limited wallets and wallets that can only send to an authorized payees list. We've got wallets whose paper backups don't just immediately yank everything in case you're worried of someone physically compromising your paper backup. The paper backup initiates a recovery process, which if your hardware keys were not lost, you can notice that someone's trying to do this and call it back again. And the most sophisticated thing we have so far, which I'm very excited about, is we have colored coins. So in practice, the main thing people actually use Ethereum for is just ERC-20 tokens. And ERC-20 tokens are very limited in terms of what they can do. They're really just balances. 
where with Shia colored coins, and this is written on top of our general purpose environment, so you could add all kinds of stuff to it. But we have working already Shia colored coins, which support inner smart transactions. So all those vaults that I just mentioned, you can actually have colored versions of those for people's internal custody, even of the colored coins. And they support non-interactive aggregation, which sounds very abstract, but it enables this amazing feature where if like, you want to say, hey, I'll trade some Chia for some colored coins, you can make a transaction, you can make a partial transaction, which prints a bunch of Chia and burns a bunch of colored coins into nothing. And this is not a valid transaction because you're not allowed to do either of those. But what you can do with it is you make this offer file and just send it via email, post on Reddit, I don't know, wherever. And then anyone in the world can take the other side of this offer and make a valid transaction out of it and introduce it to the blockchain and it will go through. So it enables this very, very powerful, truly decentralized exchange. One of the things I didn't get so far is you've described a consensus layer and a kind of an application layer around Chia. Is there cryptocurrency involved that's used as a game theory reward and punishment in the farming? There's no slashing in the farming. Farming is just Nakamoto consensus. Anyone who wants to can. We have a working test net today. Once we're done recording this, we're going to go launch our beta, actually. We're in the process of doing that today which is actually going to have transactions on our test net, which we haven't had thus far. But you can just, if you want to farm and you have a hard drive that has like a spare terabyte on it, you can download our software and start farming and start collecting test net Chia for now. And it works. So there is a cryptocurrency that is the reward for farming. Yes, it's very, very much like Bitcoin. It's a database. It keeps track of balances. It rewards people for making the database progress forward by paying them in the tokens that the database itself is keeping track of. It's almost identical to Bitcoin in that view of the world. Okay, so for our monetary Bitcoiners out there, can you describe the issuance and monetary policy of this system? Yeah, so the planned issuance policy we have is we have a pre-farm that's significant because that's our whole entire business model. That's what's gotten our investment thus far. That's what's going to fund ongoing development once the thing is launched. And then on top of that, we have farming rewards. And those are going to have a few halvings, and then it's going to stop having halvings. It just is a constant amount until the end of time, but kind of this relatively small trailing emissions compared to what's handed out at the very beginning. And Technically speaking, that's an infinite amount, but roughly speaking, the pre-farm is like half of the early, you know, first 50 years kind of stuff. And then there's just ongoing stuff till the end of time. The reason for having those trailing emissions is a security one, that when you have a cryptocurrency which, where people just get paid off transaction fees, that causes some very, very scary things to happen from a security standpoint. And we don't want to wind up having that. But it looks a lot like Bitcoin in this, just slightly tweaked. So I feel like we have to ask about kind of what's the thought behind having such a large amount of the token upfront allocated to the company? Doesn't that create centralization risks? Well, remember, this is Nakamoto consensus. This isn't proof of stake. We have no extra control over the system as a result of having this. And Bitcoin had much the same thing. You know, the first four years of Bitcoin when no one was using it were half of all the issuance that's ever going to happen. So it's not terribly different in that standpoint. And also we're going to intentionally lock up a bunch of these tokens. So the potential thing is that we could just sell a whole bunch of tokens 
which would depress the price. But we're going to, first off, promise not to do that. And second off, we're going to actually lock up our funds in ways that other people can audit where they can see on the blockchain, yeah, these funds are locked up and can't be spent for at least this amount of time. And also, we're trying really hard to not allow people to do pump and dumps here. We're not pre-selling any tokens. If people want Chia tokens, the thing to do is to farm it. So our final plot format is not done yet. But before we do release of our mainnet, everything that's farming testnet will, by default, immediately start farming mainnet once mainnet is launched. And the first few weeks of mainnet are going to have farming rewards, but no actual transactions. And if you want any actual Chia coins in advance of actual trading happening on exchanges, the only way to get them is going to do this farming up front. So what type of storage is useful? So for Amazon, you pay different amounts based on how long it takes for them to pull up the data that you store. Is there some amount of like, you know, latency requirement in queuing the data? That means that, you know, I can't just take a bunch of Arctic storage and mine Chia with it. Yeah, you need to be able to do a couple sequential lookups within like five minutes. So if your individual seek times are like 30 seconds or more, you're basically hosed. So not a problem for regular hard drives at all, but for, you know, tape drives, it's kind of not happening. And that's an intentional feature. Okay, so I'm looking at your FAQ and it's talking about the strategic reserve and it's talking about how your path to adoption involves loaning large amounts of Chia to global 5,000 companies, so to fairly large companies on a global scale. So why is that the way that Chia is going to wind up getting adopted? Why is that like the path that you guys are looking at right now for that? Well, that creates liquidity in the thing. And so it has a number of benefits. If you compare to just selling tokens, it doesn't depress the price and it fosters demand because when you loan stuff out, people are going to have to pay it back. So they're going to have to create demand for these tokens in the future in order to pay you back as well. And that doesn't just make the price tank, which is a problem that many things are having now. However, that's not the main thing that gets people actually using it. That's a business model. It's a source of liquidity. The main thing that gets people using it is it's a better token. People want to use cryptocurrencies in order to be able to do decentralized financial type things but they don't want to have this like carrying around wads of $100 bills feeling that Bitcoin does. Chia is a great solution for that. If people want to do their like, own token issuances, but don't want to roll their own thing from scratch, they can just use a Chia colored coin and you just pretty much just press a button and you have one. And that has much more functionality going into the future than ERC-20 tokens do. It has all the same kind of not carrying around wads of $100 bills benefits to it. Can you explain that a little bit more? I don't understand. What is the wads of $100 bills feeling with Bitcoin? Bitcoin is very cash and carry. Like if your Bitcoin wallet gets stolen, you lost your money. (laughs) So there are all these features that banks provide to you where when you send someone money, it gets held up for a bit. You can notice that it shouldn't have gone through and can call it back before the time is up. There's a whole bunch of things like that that banks do. They don't do it well. They don't do it transparently. They don't do it with end user control, but it's a lot better than just literally paying cash for things. There's reasons why people don't like just taking a suitcase full of cash and bringing it somewhere just from a security standpoint. Okay. So what are the features in Chia that are like, can you refund a transaction or something? You can build these things. 
you can build things so that like I can make a wallet such that every time it does a payment, it gets held up for some amount of time. And then I have some other key that's in cold storage. So if I get hacked and someone just drains my wallet, I can go, oh, looks like I've been hacked. And I can then go back to my cold storage key and get that back and call this payment back and regain access to my funds. There are many similar things to this. If I like do regular payments out to vendors, I can have a wallet that can only pay to authorized payees. So I have like an employee who has access to this wallet and I don't want that employee getting fished and I don't want that employee embezzling money. So I can make it so they can only send to this list of vendors. Basically covenants. It literally covenants. So now correct me if I'm wrong, but using the primitives in Bitcoin and with, you know, continued additions to those primitives that are continuing to come out of the development process, I think those are all things we can do in Bitcoin, maybe not today, but at an aspirational level, right, Andreas? Not today, because there's a feature that would be required in order to implement covenants. And it's one of the proposals for future addition to TabScript. Those are also, it turns out, rather limited. So this gets pretty deep in the weeds pretty fast. But a bunch of the changes that are made in Chia that make it really good for this kind of stuff are things that would be very painful to do in Bitcoin. So, you know, in principle, you can always just make an extension block and then you can change everything. But Bitcoin Core is extremely conservative about that kind of stuff and isn't going to do anything that big unless there's like years of a proven system showing that it's worth doing. But you have these technical changes like the format of transactions is vastly simplified so that the programming language itself can talk about transactions and analyze and look at them. And in Bitcoin, it's just very, very complicated and gets gnarly to do the kind of string mangling you need to talk about them. Also in Chia, all transactions go through simultaneously. And in Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're serialized. They must go through in some order within one block. And that proves to be highly problematic. This non-interactive aggregation feature that I said is very, very dependent on having everything go through simultaneously, which also makes it much easier to parallelize authentication of blocks, by the way, as well. So I've gone down the rabbit hole of going, well, how would you improve Bitcoin script? And, you know, in principle, Bitcoin can do all kinds of stuff. In practice, even though I'm staying within what is the spirit of Bitcoin, the actual delta, the damage <laughs> done to the legacy running system to try and support a number of these things is so huge that Bitcoin may do these things eventually, but isn't going to for a while. I would say some of these types of features are things where Bitcoin Core might consider it once Chia is successful at doing it and has been for a while. And there's greater comfort with doing some of these more extreme kind of things, which aren't, by the way, very extreme if you start that way. But shifting is gnarly. Well, Bram, we really appreciate your time today and for going kind of down this rabbit hole or series of rabbit holes with us. You have a very interesting approach towards Nakamoto consensus. And frankly, I'm looking forward to seeing the protocol come out so I can give it a try. You know, I didn't do as much early Bitcoin mining as perhaps I wanted to. And it seems like there's an opportunity here if you've got a computer sitting around with some spare hard drive space. If people are interested in your project, where can they find out more about it? People can go to Chia.net and download it and run it and play with it. We've got Testnet out already. 
once it's up and running and you've kind of got some more real world experience with it, I think it would be interesting, again, assuming that everything goes well, to see how all of this goes and perhaps dig into some of these changes a bit more, because it certainly is an interesting way to think about some of the problems that Bitcoin has. But I'm very curious to see if your solutions wind up working well. Okay, folks, well, that's a wrap on episode 433 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thanks to everyone for participating. Thanks to everyone for listening. You can find new episodes every Sunday on Coindesk.com, letstalkbitcoin.com, and of course, the show's dedicated feed at ltpshow.com. This episode was sponsored by etoro.com and purse.io with music by Jerry Rubens and Gertie Beats, straight from the street. Today's show featured Bram Cohen, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine with editing by Jonas. And if you have any questions or comments, send me an email at adamandltbshow.com. Otherwise, we'll see you next time.